welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet and I'm here with Rachel Madel. How's it going, Rachel? It is going really well. It's Monday morning and I'm feeling ready for the week. So did you have a good week? I had an amazing week last week, yes. Um, I was sick actually the week before and so I was like getting back into the swing of things um, last week and um, had a really crazy week. I have tons of IEPs. I feel like it's IEP season. So I feel like I've been just writing, you know, goals and present level summaries. And I feel like all the IEPs happen at once in my practice, at least. And it's quite overwhelming. Wait a second. Wait a second. I'm not sure I understand because you do a private practice. So you're writing IEP goals or are you working off IEPs that already exist and they bring you those IEPs? Or are you reading other people's IEPs and commenting on the goals? How does that work? I'm doing all of the above. So, you know, we'll provide a present level summary for parents to take into meetings. Oftentimes I will review the IEP before parents sign it. You know, sometimes I'll phone call into the meeting. Sometimes I'll attend the meeting. Sometimes I'll just provide, you know, here's what's going on at home. So it kind of depends on what the parents are interested in. If the parents are, have a good working relationship with the school or are trying to fight for, you know, more services for a device, you know, all these things. So it kind of depends, but yes, I am always providing input from what we're doing on the private side so that the school, you know, knows what's going on and we can collaborate. And oftentimes it's, it's a really good relationship with the school clinicians. We're just making sure that we're, we're doing the same things in the same ways. And we're really supporting kids um, both in school and at home. So sometimes you write your own goals though. You have, you might have your own separate goals. Is it like if you disagree with them, how does that work? Yeah. So I always have um, a treatment plan for all the kids that I work with. I mean, in an ideal situation, we would have very similar, if not identical goals that we're working on. Um, But sometimes we don't, uh, unfortunately. So there's some disagreements with what, you know, a child is doing at school. And um, I won't let that affect the way that I do treat and the goals that I create. So in an ideal world, they're the same, but sometimes they're not. Yeah, I think we've had that conversation many times trying to get the private practice person and the school person and the whole school team be on the same page and have a kind of a collaborative shared perspective of where to go is the is the best if you can you can make it happen. Yeah, and that's why I really like, you know, attending these meetings because it it feels like we're in silos, right? It's like here's what's going on at home and here's what's going on at school. Like instead, I love being a part of the meeting so we can just talk about here's what we're seeing and then we kind of revise the goals as needed in real time, depending on the, you know, input from all the practitioners, which is the way an IP meeting really should be. It doesn't always happen like that because of scheduling and other, you know, constraints, but that's the ideal situation is that I'm able to attend either by phone or ideally in person. And so we're able to, to work together because, you know, yeah, you can be working on a certain goal, but then you could get input from, you know, an OT or the, the school clinician and you find out more information that you didn't realize and you might need to adjust your goal. Yeah. Now, so having working in the school there and working in collaboration with them. Have you ever found people that you have worked with then have maybe joined the Facebook group? Um, yes. So I have a lot of clinicians that do join the Facebook group. We also have a new addition to the Facebook group. It might surprise everybody. Who? Who? Now you've got me on the edge of my seat. Who is the new addition to the Facebook group? So I woke up this morning and I hopped on Facebook. Who did I see that joined our Facebook group? It was my mom. My mom joined our Facebook group. It says, Malia Madel wants to join Talking With Tech. And I was like, hey, what is she doing joining our group? Um, but I will say, she was she came to my presentation when I presented at Pisha. She was in the front row. And we spent the entire car ride home talking about AAC. She was really interested. 
she actually, so she does home care. She's a nurse and she works with kids. And one of the little girls that she works with is nonverbal. And we've talked extensively about, you know, AAC and all these things. And I have been encouraging her to talk with the parents about potentially using AAC because right now this child doesn't have any type of communication system. You know, she is medically fragile and I'm like, mom, you need to say something like you need to, you know, talk to the parents and just, you know, I'm like, use my name and just be like, my daughter's a speech therapist. She does work with this, you know, kind of population. Um, like say whatever you need to say, but like this little girl needs to have some type of voice. Um, and so anyway, I, I saw that this morning and I was like, are you getting interested in AAC mom? Um, and I think she really is. So I'm excited. And not just because you're doing it, because it actually touches her life, right? Someone that she knows needs it as the awareness and acceptance of people using communication devices continues to grow. It's going to be um, it, like everyone knows somebody that has had cancer, right? Everybody knows somebody that has had some sort of, I don't know, neurological disorder. Somebody always knows somebody who, who has had some sort of uh, disease that, that is impacting them. Someone will always know somebody who's going to be using a communication device, right? Or at least needs one. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that this story is just a testament to, you know, we need to to really expand our reach. Like never in a million years would I think my mom would be in contact with someone who, you know, she could potentially influence. If it wasn't for me, you know, doing the work that I do, she wouldn't know anything about AAC or, you know, the fact that there's alternatives. If a child's not communicating verbally, you know, there's an alternative to that. Um, and I'll never forget the first time she was explaining the case to me. I was like, it was the first question out of my mouth. I was like, is she using a device? What about like any type of low tech supports? Like, you know, visual supports, anything? I'm like, how is she communicating? She's like, she just cries when she's upset and she smiles when she's happy. And I'm like, there's so much more. So now that your mom is in the Facebook group, I'm going to kind of reach out to her and I'm going to ask her all sorts of questions about like, what is, what was like growing up like, you know, what was it like? Do you have any good Rachel stories? Oh, that makes me really nervous. And she's going to be all about sharing. And rest assured, my mom will like every single thing that I say or do on social media. So um, yeah, she, in addition to the Facebook request that I got this morning, she also sent me a amazing picture from my childhood uh, where I have the worst bowl cut I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, and I sent it to you, Chris, this morning, because I was like, oh, in case you wanted to see what my younger years were like, they were full of bowl cuts. Well, I think we have that in common because back when I had hair, I had a bowl cut as well as a kid. So maybe I'll have to share that in the group just because, you know, when this episode's post, we can share our, our childhood photos just to see what we look like. Yeah, let's just post bowl cut photos of ourselves and everyone will definitely get a, a kick out of it. Um, so I don't know if our listeners know this, but I have a twin brother and we both had matching bowl cuts. And I'll never forget, I don't know how old I was, maybe like six or seven with this awesome bowl cut. And I had just gotten a haircut. So we had just gotten fresh bowl cuts. And <laughs> this, this old woman came up to my, my brother and I. And of course, we were wearing some type of matching outfits. And this woman was like, oh my goodness, your twin boys are so adorable. And I was mortified because I was like, mom, I knew everyone thought I looked like a boy. And I definitely like confirmed that today with this lady. Um, so it's just funny how little things like that, uh, <laughs> they stick with you. So your mom did put you in matching outfits? 
Yeah. Oh my God. So many matching outfits. Um, and, and like, you know, sometimes it was like a little dress for me and, you know, a matching, you know, little pantsuit for my brother, but sometimes it wasn't, it was the exact same outfits. And because I had, you know, a bowl cut, it was hard to know that I was a little girl. So. Hey, Rachel, another question, and just getting back to communication here for a second is, did you ever experience any twin language with your brother? Yes, actually. Um, yes, my brother and I, we did. We had like our own little language and we actually had a really hard time with socialization because the first, you know, few years of our lives, we didn't really have a lot of interaction with other kids. And so I'll never forget going to kindergarten and they split us up. I tell this story actually a lot, um, you know, because we know kids when they transition to kindergarten, it's like a big deal. And for me, it was quite traumatic because it was the first time that I was split up from my brother. And I'll never forget us getting off the bus and we were on the bus holding hands and we got off the bus and, you know, it's like, okay, like, you know, Rachel, you're going to come with me. And like, Matt's going to go, you know, with, you know, whatever his teacher. And I was like, what? Like nobody told me that this was going to happen. And I'll never forget, like I cried so hard and was so scared because I had never been apart from him. And literally we'll never forget when we finally saw each other at the end of the day, we both got on the bus, we sat together and I like have never been so relieved. I had never been so relieved. I was like, Oh my gosh, thank gosh. We're like back together. Um, but I just think it's, it's really interesting how those, those, you know, childhood experiences. I mean, I was six years old when that happened. Um, they stick with you. So it's just something that to keep in mind when we're thinking about, you know, the children that we work with. Oh, absolutely. They're totally ingrained in your, in your brain, right? I mean, they, they somehow they, they take root inside and they hold on. And then those are the memories that we either cherish or, or don't, you know, if it's a, if it's a negative memory. Um, so let me ask you, is your brother going to join the group? <laughs> yeah, my whole family will join. Really Everybody fun. should join. Exactly. Everyone. If you haven't joined our Facebook group, I mean, you're going to get to see my mom like all the things that we do. So definitely search Talking With Tech and, and join our group because we have a lot of cool conversations in there. You're also hopefully going to get to see a picture of Chris and I with bowl cuts one day. Definitely join the group if you haven't already. It's, uh, lots of really great stuff going on in there. Yeah, you hear that, mom? Join the group. So Rachel, tell us about this interview that you have coming up. So what's really interesting is we've been talking about my mom, um, you know, for a majority of this, uh, this banter. And my mom actually is connected to our interviewee because Carly Stoltenberg had Guillain-Barre syndrome and she comes on and she talks about her experience. And actually my mom had Guillain-Barre syndrome and it's, it's quite rare. I think Carly, she left the statistic. I think it's like one in 100,000, um, have Guillain-Barre syndrome. And so my mom had it when she was a little girl. So anyway, it's funny how it's kind of full circle now. Um, but yeah, Car Carly comes on and talks about her experience. She was paralyzed for at least six months. Um, she was in the hospital and she talks about how the experience that she had not being able to communicate because she was on a ventilator, um, how that experience has shaped her practice. Um, so she is a speech language pathologist and now she's kind of dedicated her career to informing both clinicians and caregivers on, you know, what to do in that situation. You know, when you're cognitively there, like she understood everything that was going on around her, but she just wasn't able to communicate. And so her story is really powerful and very inspiring um, just to hear the experience that she went through. And it's really interesting because it really translates to 
our specific population that we work with and all of our listeners, you know, the, the populations that we work with, uh, children and adults with complex communication needs. Um, she just has a lot of insight into that area, firsthand experience. So the interview was really great and I'm really excited to, to share her story with our, with our listeners. I can't wait to hear it. Now, let me understand. You also mentioned that sometimes she may have um, used language that we don't typically have used on this podcast. Yes. So there are a few instances where she does swear and we've kind of gone back and forth and trying to decide, do we cut it? Do we keep it? Um, in the honor of really trying to respect her expression, um, we've decided to keep it. So um, just beware that there are some swear words in there. And um, if you have you know kids in the car, definitely uh, wait to listen to this episode um, until you're not with your kids. We don't want those little ears hearing anything that they shouldn't. Carly had a lot of really great things to say, so we had to split the episode into two parts. So don't miss next week because we're going to finish up our interview with Carly. So without further ado, let's listen to Rachel's interview with Carly. Hi, I'm Matt Hott, one of the hosts of Speech Science, a weekly podcast bringing you all the information that you can handle related to speech sciences and disabilities. Michelle Wintering, Michael McLeod, and I interview leaders and difference makers in the field. Every Tuesday, we drop a new episode. You can find us on iTunes, Android, and on our website, www.speechscience.org slash speech science podcast. Join us as we try to find the answers to the question, what is communication? Welcome to Talking with Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Mito, joined today by Carly Stoltenberg. I'm so excited to have you on, Carly. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So let's just start off by you telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your story. Sure. Um, well, like you said, my name is Carly, and I have been a speech pathologist for about 24 years. And two years ago, I was diagnosed with something called Guillain-Barre syndrome. And Guillain-Barre is an autoimmune disorder that afflicts approximately one in 100,000 people. And typically, they say that it's brought on by some sort of illness, like gastrointestinal or upper respiratory. But I wasn't sick before I got Guillain-Barre. Um, in fact, I was actually skiing in Taos, New Mexico, two days before I started having some symptoms. And I was always perfectly healthy and physically fit. I'd never been in the hospital except for to have my two babies. So when I started feeling a little bit symptomatic, I didn't know what was going on. So I went to my primary care physician on a Friday and he sent me home, said nothing was wrong with me. And then I went to the ER the next morning because I still wasn't feeling well. And I was just feeling very achy and very tired. And mm -hmm. at first I attributed it to just skiing, thought that I was yeah. feeling from that. But it was more of an internal like muscle cramping that just was so, so painful. And I kept trying to take a bath or take Advil, Tylenol, nothing was helping. So like I said, I went to the ER on a Saturday morning and had some blood work, some labs done and was sent home. Nothing was wrong. So that night, um, Saturday night, I was just not feeling well. And I'm a single mom, but both my kids were at my ex-husband's house. And I called a friend of mine and I told her, you know, I'm afraid to be alone. Would you come spend the night here? Which is totally out of character for me because I've been super independent since, you know, the time I was 18 and moved out of my parents' home. So it was really unusual for me to even ask for help, but I just didn't feel right. So she came over and 
about 4.30 in the morning, I, you know, couldn't sleep, was all of a sudden feeling like my feet were really numb, like they were asleep. So I started stomping around my bedroom trying to wake up my feet. And all of a sudden, I just had this overwhelming feeling that I was dying. And I don't know why I can't tell you definitively what it was, but I just felt like something was wrong. So I went and woke my friend up and got in the car and I walked into the hospital on my own two feet and sat down and the person that admitted me said, you know, weren't you just here this morning? And I said, yes, but they sent me home and I'm still not feeling well. Mm -hmm. So the ER doctor came in and started talking to me and he said, are you a heavy drinker? And I said, no, why? And he said, well, your lab results from earlier today came back with elevated enzymes in your liver. And I said, well, nobody said anything. They sent me home earlier. So by this point, I was kind of having a hard time just putting my thoughts together, putting sentences together to even explain what was going on. And from that point on, it kind of became a little bit hazy because I just was feeling so bad, like just physically and mentally just did not feel well. Fortunately, the ER doctor looked at my symptoms because symptoms with Guillain-Barre typically start in your feet and kind of work their way up. He said that he thought I either had MS or Guillain-Barre syndrome. Mm -hmm. So they did a three-hour MRI that I have no recollection of, ruled out MS. And then the doctor said, you know, I don't know if it's Guillain-Barre, but I'm going to start treating you as if that is what it is. And so they started some of the treatments that I can go into in a little bit. But the next morning they did a spinal tap that I don't remember, but that's what confirmed they had Guillain-Barre syndrome because the definitive features of Guillain-Barre are that you have elevated proteins in your cerebral spinal fluid. And that's what I had. So Um, the next morning I tried to get out of bed to go to the bathroom and that's when I realized I was completely paralyzed. So it happened that quickly from going completely able-bodied, normal, healthy to being paralyzed. And originally when the doctors started talking to me about Guillain-Barre, they said that typically the way that it presents itself again, starts in its, in the feet goes up from there, but within two weeks, you usually plateau and you start getting better. And in my case, that didn't happen. Um, I do remember hearing a little bit about Guillain-Barre when I was in undergrad, graduate school, you know, talking about it, but really didn't spend a lot of time focusing on it because in the majority of cases, speech pathologists don't really need to be involved because with Guillain-Barre, you're cognitively intact, so your language skills are fine, Mm -hmm. um, and usually it just paralyzes your, your hands, feet, legs, arms. But in my case, I had a really severe case that progressed upward and affected my autonomic nervous system. So everything for breathing and swallowing and heart rate, blood pressure, all of that stuff started going crazy. And I ended up on a ventilator and a feeding tube. And so I needed to have speech pathology brought in at that point because I needed help with swallowing and feeding and I needed assistive technology. And then even when I started talking again, I think I had, you know, some sort of flaccid dysarthria because I definitely had, you know, my speech wasn't as clear as it had been. And then in addition to that, I had double vision. So I, you know, couldn't see very well. So when the speech pathologist in the hospital, she originally brought in like just the generic boards that you find in hospital rooms with picture communication symbols and things like that. And it wasn't something that was effective for me. 
you know, primarily I didn't really feel like the pictures on that board were anything that I wanted to talk about. But I also, um, you know, I, I couldn't move my hands and my arms to even touch a communication board. And even if I could, I couldn't isolate my fingers to point to the pictures. Mm-hmm. And I had so much fatigue that even... I had friends that were coming in bringing sun visors with laser pointers attached with alphabet boards, trying to get me to use my head to be able to, you know, look at different words and pictures. And it was just too exhausting for me. I just didn't have the strength or the endurance to participate in those types of communication systems. So as a speech pathologist, that really changed my perspective because I know that when I have in the past worked with people who need AAC, you know, especially if they're cognitively intact, you kind of go straight for high tech and, you know, the most advanced systems and voice output. And I didn't want any of that stuff. So I ended up developing my own system of communication that is very archaic and very primitive, but... I was, again, so tired that all I wanted to do was close my eyes and have my caregivers go through the alphabet. And when they got to the letter I wanted, then I would just open my eyes. And I even had to kind of facilitate that with my communication partners because I'm working primarily with my own parents who at the time, you know, were 72 and almost 80. And I remember being so frustrated that as I would open my eyes to spell different words, they weren't writing the letters down. And so they would get a few letters in and then forget what I had spelled. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like, you know, what is going on? So I finally was able to communicate, write it down, you know, write the letters down. And then from there, there were several words that I used over and over again that were very important to my needs and my wants and my feelings. And It's funny because I have a vague memory of those words, but didn't remember specifically what that was like. But yesterday, um, a friend of mine who helped take care of me while I was in the hospital sent me a picture that had popped up in her memories. And it was a picture that I didn't know what it was when she first sent it. And I had to ask her and she said, well, that's the bathroom door in your ICU room. It was made out of glass and we used it as a communication board where we wrote all of the words that you used frequently on that door. And those are the words that we would start there to kind of frame the context and to narrow the focus of what you might want to say. And if the words weren't on that board or on that door, then we would go to the spelling system. So, um, but it really hit me hard seeing that two years post-diagnosis because I think the word that hit me the hardest was sad. I had the word sad out of a list of 25 words and phrases. Sad was one of them and, you know, broke my heart that that was such an important word to me. You know, I had other words. I had poop. You know, I had um, (laughs) suction because I was constantly needing to be suctioned. I had so much physical pain, but couldn't move my own body. And it's kind of like if you have ever had the flu and you're in bed and you just can't get comfortable. Mm -hmm. That was what it was to the extreme for me, but I couldn't move my own body to change my position. So every 10 minutes I was requesting, you know, change my position. Um, things like that. So it certainly changed my perspective on things. And I tell everybody all the time that GBS was the best thing that ever happened to me, as crazy as that sounds, because it changed my perspective as a mom and as an ex-wife and as a speech pathologist, as a human being. And it's um, something I've become very passionate in talking about because I know as a speech pathologist, before I got sick, 
a lot of times I was afraid to admit professional limitations, especially as a new grad. You know, I didn't want to admit that I didn't know something. And I think that's one of the takeaways that I had was that if you don't know something, you need to ask. And out of all the doctors, nurses, therapists that I worked with, the ones that were the best were the ones who were willing to admit professional limitation and who were willing to collaborate with other people. And in so many cases, but I think especially in the case of something where you have so many physical limitations, that collaboration piece is so, so important. I mean, I had eight different doctors that I was working with at one time. I had OTPT speech, I had respiratory therapists, I had, you know, all of those different disciplines. And whenever there was a breakdown in communication between those professionals, it just made things so much harder for me. Mm -hmm. And I just, I know for myself, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And I thought that I was an excellent speech pathologist before I got sick. But I just realized there's so many things I could do differently. And I think that's kind of what my passion has become is just educating people on the patient perspective. Um, again, the whole thing with communication, that whole piece of, of being a patient, a person who needed assistive technology and my perspective on that, being a patient who needed a feeding tube. I you know, spent a little bit of time in the hospital settings when I first graduated. And I remember talking with families and with patients about feeding tubes. And in my own mind, the best way to go for everybody, at least to start, was an NG tube because it's a non-surgical procedure. It's less invasive. And to me, it just seemed simple. You know, put it in and take it out. But I can tell you that of all the different treatments that I had, you know, rectal tubes, catheters, so many different people poking and prodding me, the most painful procedure that I ever had was that feeding tube, the NGT tube being inserted and then being removed. Mm. I can't even describe to you how painful that was. And I also didn't realize how often they get clogged, especially if you're having meds pushed through them. And so my feeding tube um, got clogged a couple of times and they had to take it out and reinsert it. And I wasn't getting the nutrition I needed. So I've always been physically a little person. I'm only 5'4 and I was 106 pounds before I got sick, but I dropped down to 84 pounds while I was in the hospital. I lost all my muscle tone. I, I wasn't healthy. And that was another barrier to recovery for me. And I think, gosh, if I had just had that NG tube to start, then maybe I wouldn't have lost so much weight and I wouldn't have gotten so sick. Mm -hmm. um, but then I ended up having that NG tube. It was a very easy, minor surgical procedure. Um, I still have a scar from it. I'll have that forever, but it saved my life and it wasn't painful at all. Um, so I really have had a perspective change on that, that there's no one size fits all for anybody. And if, if someone in, in my opinion, and again, I'm not, you know, say that I'm an expert, but at least consider if someone's going to be on that NG tube for more than a couple of weeks, knowing that it clogs easily and knowing that that could hinder nutrition, then maybe that's not the way you want to go with your patients. Yeah. I mean, so Carly, this is really personally relevant to me because I mentioned before we hopped on, uh, my mom had Guillain-Barre syndrome right. and my mom actually had it when, I mean, she probably, I guess this was in like the late sixties. Okay. Um, and so nobody knew what it was. Uh -huh. And so she like, I mean, she was in the hospital for 
I want to say like eight or nine months. Oh yeah. And she like, she, she's still, she, I mean, the only obviously recollection I have of it of what she is, what she's told me, Right. but it's just like, what a debilitating, um, absolutely debilitating. It's a very lonely feeling. You know, I had so many different emotions running through me on a regular basis that change from minute to minute. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I was so lonely, but I was so tired. So having visitors fatigued me. When I was finally off the ventilator, I still had decreased breath support. So talking was Mm -hmm. so hard for me. I mean, I was spending the majority of my energy just trying to live. I coded twice while I was in the hospital and I almost died. And I remember at one point being on a ventilator and I was cognitively intact. I mean, I was sedated, but I still heard everything that was going on around me. I remember vividly, you know, being on that ventilator and that I was just so tired. And all of a sudden my mom would say, breathe, Carly, you need to breathe, Carly. Like I didn't realize that my body was just like, you know, so relaxed and fighting to live that even breathing became something that I had to think about. But at one point the doctors came in and I remember them telling my mom that I would probably never walk again and that they should consider the need for long-term care for me. And my mom was with me all the time. Both my parents, they actually moved out from California to Arizona to be with me for six months. I became essentially a 46-year-old baby. Um, After, like I said, I moved out of the house when I was 18 and was always independent. I became completely dependent on people for every single thing. Um, I couldn't even get up to go to the bathroom because I was paralyzed, but not to mention I, you know, was so weak. Even sitting on um, a bedpan was painful because I had no body fat. So I was having to go to the bathroom in the bed, which was humbling. And, you know, someone else had to clean me up. I couldn't feed myself, but my mom wrote down every single thing that happened. She took notes and kept a journal, actually filled two journals with every single doctor that came in the room, wrote down everything that they said, wrote down what medications I was taking. And I just realized how important that is for our patients to have somebody that's going to be able to do that for them. Because even though I could hear what was going on, I was in no position to advocate for myself. And, you know, there were times I had to So there were times that would be hearing things that were happening. And one memory I have in particular is that one of the treatments I was going to go into is something called um, plasmapheresis, where they put a port in my neck and they took my plasma out and basically cleaned it up. And I think cycled it back through my body, trying to get rid of all of the antibodies that were attacking my body. And the very first time they put that port in, they told me, you know, before you can have the treatment, we're going to have to have someone come in and do an x-ray so we can make sure the port was inserted correctly. And so they put that port in, did the x-ray, did five rounds of the treatment, and then took it out. And then a few days later, they said, oh, no, you need more. So then they put the port back in. And when the person came in to do the treatment, he said, I'm here to do your plasmapheresis. And I was on a ventilator at the time, and I shook my head no. And he goes, oh, you don't want the treatment. And I shook my head, yes. And he goes, you want it or you don't want it? And so at that point, I turned to my parents and I closed my eyes like to signal to them I wanted to spell something. So they went through the alphabet and they got to X and I opened my eyes and they went through the alphabet and they got to R and I opened my eyes. My mom goes, you haven't had your X-ray yet. And I shook my head, no. And 
those kinds of things happen all the time in the hospital setting. And Mm -hmm. so again, it's just so important that you either have someone that can advocate for your patients or have a way that your patients can advocate for themselves. And being willing to look outside the box at different methods of communication and and realizing that maybe you don't know best, that maybe you need to collaborate with other professionals to see how that patient can access a particular device or if they have vision issues where they can't even use eye gaze. So that's, again, one of the the things that when I I talk to grad students and other professionals in the field about Guillain-Barre syndrome, it's, you know, one of the things is the communication issue. The other is the feeding issues, Mm -hmm. but it's also ways to facilitate resiliency in your patients with Guillain-Barre or any patients for that matter, because going back to what the doctor said about me probably never walking again and telling my family that I had the most severe case of Yambre they'd ever seen, people often ask me why I, they think I recovered to the extent that I recovered. And I remember people coming to my room and my friends coming and visiting and, you know, crying and saying, oh my gosh, Carly, I can't believe that this is you. And, you know, I, I could never do this. I would, I wouldn't be here right now. I would, you know, have already died or I'd be curled up in the fetal position. And I remember saying, honestly, if I could curl up in the fetal position, that's where I'd be, but I'm paralyzed, so I can't. So, you know, that's just not an option for me. So I did a lot of research on resiliency when I got out of the hospital. And what I found is that people who have resilient dispositions don't not have bad days ever. We do, but it's, you know, we have a pity party, we cry, we scream, what have you, feel sorry for ourselves. But then we get back up and not in my case, literally, but you start doing it again. You start fighting again. And it's really, really important to be able to find the silver lining in things and to kind of put things into perspective as well. And that's something too that I did during my own recovery. I remember being paralyzed before I was transferred to my acute rehab setting. I was in a hospital for 59 days in acute hospital setting where I was on my back the entire time. They rarely got me even up into a chair. And I remember telling my mom, even if I never recover fully, if I could just get into a wheelchair, that's what I want because I just felt like that would give me at least some independence back. So I had to remind myself of that as I you know, took next steps and got into the wheelchair to be grateful for that. And I know there was one day when I was kind of starting to learn how to walk again, I had braces on my legs and I had a walker and it was one of those days I was just having a bad day and I was on the verge of tears. And all of a sudden I heard a voice from across the room that said, I wish my son could do that. And I turned and looked and it was the mom of another patient who had Guillain-Barre, a 16 year old boy. And he had been diagnosed about the same time I had been diagnosed and he was still in a power wheelchair and I was already starting to walk again. And at that moment, it hit me that there's always going to be someone who wishes that they were where I am right now. And Mm -hmm. again, that put things into perspective for me. So, you know, that's kind of along the, the road to being resilient. It It is again, you know, staying positive and, putting things into perspective, but it's also finding purpose in your trauma. And one of the things that I think has always been in my personality is to be a positive person. 
And I'm much more positive now than I even was before I got sick. But I used to pin inspirational quotes, quotes on Pinterest. And while I was in that first hospital, one of my occupational therapists had gotten on my Pinterest page and she saw some of my quotes and she printed out one and it said, you've been assigned this mountain to show others it can be moved. And I asked my mom to hang that on my wall. And that quote followed me from every time I was transferred to a different room or back and forth in the ICU or it's ultimately in my home now. And it's just, you've been assigned this mountain to show others it can be moved. It just hit me that even if the doctors can't definitively tell me why this happened to me or how this happened to me, that has become the purpose of my trauma is to educate other people about Guillain-Barre syndrome and to mentor other people. Because I, I know that when I was finally transferred to the acute rehab setting, my hospital provided a peer mentor for me, a woman who had had Guillain-Barre three years prior to my diagnosis. And I had never met anybody with Guillain-Barre before. And when she walked through my hospital door and looked, quote, normal to me, I just burst into tears because it gave me hope that I would someday be back to my own normal. And I think it's really important that we're able to kind of talk about those traumas with other people. And I continue to do that through podcasts like this or through mentoring other patients and it's definitely, I always say there's no such thing as a completely altruistic act because it's not just for the patients I mentor. It's very selfishly for me because the more I talk about it with people that understand, the easier it is for me because there is no cure for, for Guillain-Barre. Um, even though the doctors had originally told me that 80% of people make a full recovery, what I'm finding out is that that's not true. Guillain-Barre is an autoimmune disorder, and that means it's always going to be in me. And people that I've talked to who, to me, look like they made a full recovery, including my own peer mentor, I find out that they still have symptoms. My peer mentor, Melissa, still can't wear heels because she doesn't have the, the strength in her, her ankles to be able to wear high heels. She still can't feel her feet. I'm the same way. Nobody knows by looking at me that there's anything wrong with me. At least I hope not. <laughs> but I have chronic neuropathy. I, I can't feel my feet. I have numbness and tingling in my feet and my hands. I get shortness of breath. And people don't know that unless I tell them. And most of the time, I even forget about it unless I really think about it. So it doesn't bother me to a point where I can't live my life. But I recently was diagnosed with the chronic version of Guillain-Barre that's called chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy or CIDP. And I really feel that, and again, I'm not an expert on it, but everybody that I've been in contact with who has had Guillain-Barre even 40 years ago, when we start talking about it and talking about the symptoms that I'm experiencing, I'll get, oh yeah, me too. Or yeah, that happens to me too. But I think a lot of people who have been so many years removed from it forget what it was like to be normal or have kind of made accommodations for those symptoms and they still function, quote, normally. Yeah, I, there's there's so many great things that you've said, Carly, that I want to circle back to. Um, the first being that, you know, you really talked about the advocating piece. And I think that's so important when we're thinking about something that we could so very easily do with the families and, you know, the clients that we're working with is really like 
you know, saying, make sure you keep track of everything that's happening in the hospital. Make, I, I just had a conversation, um, six months ago, actually, uh, a colleague of mine called me and she was like, help Rachel. Like, I think my son is showing signs of regressive autism. And I'm like, okay, I'm like, stay calm, but like document everything, Absolutely. videos of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, because those are the kinds of things that you think back like, oh, wow, like it would have been nice to know all of this information. And you forget too, you know, cause going back to the documentation that my own mom did a few months after I got out of the hospital, started reading those journals and memories came back. And even to that conversation where the doctors told my parents to consider the need for long-term care, my mom had written in the journal that I used my eyes to spell out, I don't want to be a vegetable. I was so afraid of going, they wanted to send me to a skilled nursing facility. And I had worked in SNFs before. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's nothing wrong with a skilled nursing facility. They're, They're fabulous facilities for certain people. But for Guillain-Barre, the research has shown that patients need acute, intense rehab. And I was not going to get that in a sniff. And I was just picturing myself continuing to lose muscle tone and wither away. And it was scary. It was really, really scary to me. As I mentioned, I'm a single mom. And I just couldn't wrap my mind around the fact that I had two babies at home that needed me. I've always been their primary caregiver Um, up until the moment I was sick. I had my kids the majority of the time. They only were with their dad about four nights a month. Um, I had them every day during the week. I was PTO vice president, their school room mom, super involved and active. And then all of a sudden at an instant moment in my life, I became incapacitated and couldn't take care of them on my own. So I needed to get back to my life, even if it was a modified version of myself. And to that point, one of the other things that I really spent a lot of time talking about in the presentations that I do at universities and at state conventions is about documentation. Um, I've always been big on documentation. I'm one of those obsessive people with paperwork, making sure I have um, my data and everything that I need, you know, in terms of IEPs, everything's in compliance. But I mentioned that I eventually was transferred to acute rehab, but it took five appeals to get me there. And we couldn't figure it out. We're like, why why is insurance denying? Why are they denying my, my transfer when research says this is what is best for me? And fortunately, being in the field, I have so many friends who are OTs, PTs, and speech pathologists. And one of my PT friends happens to work at the acute rehab facility that I was eventually transferred to. And so she knows what essentially Medicare and insurance requires in order to approve that type of treatment. So my friend had to talk to my therapists who were working at this acute hospital setting that had never worked in acute rehab before. And she had to counsel them about what essential components needed to be included in their documentation. Things like, you know, at 46 years old, I was relatively young. Um, I had two young children that I was trying to get home to. I was extremely motivated to get back to my, my life. I was able to sit in a chair for an hour, up to an hour at a time um, that I could tolerate and benefit from the three to four hours of therapy that was going to be provided to me in that acute care hospital setting. And those are all like documented things that need to go into the documentation. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know that, 
then again, you need to be willing to admit professional limitation and just say, hey, I'm not familiar with that kind of facility. Who can I talk to about what I need to include in my notes to make sure that my patient is going to get the services that they need? Because that can make the difference between life and death for somebody. Absolutely. Um, I also want to touch on a little bit about the communication system that you brought up. I think this is so important. Um, There are a few things that you said that I absolutely loved. The first being, I was cognitively intact and I could hear everything that everybody was saying. And this is a huge point that I try to make to clinicians, to teachers. We can't talk about, just because somebody's not communicating with us, just because they're not responding to the questions that we're asking does not mean that they're not fully aware and comprehending what's being said. Um, And so I think it's really important to be cognizant of that, Um, you know, especially from a doctor perspective. I mean, having to hear that you, you know, might not um, ever walk again. um, I mean, I can't even imagine how like heart-wrenching that must be to hear. Um, You know, and those doctors, I need to point out, don't specialize in Guillain-Barre syndrome. Mm -hmm. So there was a moment before I was actually transferred at the very beginning of my hospital stay when I was two weeks in, when my boyfriend at the time and my parents were talking to the doctors at my hospital and trying to get me transferred to either Barrow or Mayo, which are considered the best for neuro rehab and, um, you know, just neurological issues. And my doctors, I remember them saying to me that they had called the doctors over at those facilities and that they had been assured that the treatment they were providing to me was exactly what they would provide to me at those facilities. They didn't want to let me go. They wanted to keep me, you know, and continue to treat me on their own. And I really am very appreciative of another one of my neurologists that I had um, after I was after I spent my 59 days at the first hospital and then another 44 in acute rehab and I was discharged, um, I ended up back in the hospital again. Um, my peer mentor had, had warned me. Um, she said, Carly, that research shows that people that have Guillain-Barre syndrome, if their bodies or their minds become stressed, then you can have a setback. And so that's another thing with therapy that's important to, to push your clients, but not to push too hard because they're they can take steps backward. But I remember looking at my mom and saying, that's not going to happen to me. I mean, that's just Melissa. She, you know, maybe she's not as strong as I am. Well, as soon as I got home from the hospital, little Miss Type A was back to mom, get my laptop, go buy me a calendar. I need to start scheduling things. I need to start making phone calls and feeling useful at work again. And I ended up back in the hospital about a month later. Mm -hmm. And that doctor was willing to admit professional limitation. He said, Carly, I don't specialize in Guillain-Barre, and I think that you should find a neurologist who does. Mm-hmm. And that's how I ended up finding the, the neurologist that I currently see, and he is one of the leaders in the field for Guillain-Barre, does a lot of research. And this was a, by a year post-diagnosis that I finally ended up in his office. And um, my other neurologist I had seen for like my year checkup and I tried to explain to him that I still wasn't feeling great. I was still symptomatic. I was tired and I still didn't feel good. And he basically said, you know what, Carly, you're lucky to be alive. And we never thought you'd walk again and left it at that. And I thought, oh, okay, well, this is the best I'm going to be. And when I finally started seeing my new neurologist, he spent so much time with me that he sat me down in his office after the initial exam and 
talked to me and treated me like a professional, not the patient. And he said, you know your body better than anybody else. And if you're telling me that you are feeling things that you didn't feel before, I think we can do better. And I think I want to be aggressive in reevaluating you and treating you if you're okay with that. And I was like, absolutely. Someone's finally listening to me. And that was really important to me because I felt that a lot of times when I was on the ventilator that I didn't have a voice and people would dismiss me. People would tell me I, I didn't know what I was talking about, that certain things that were happening couldn't possibly be happening. And then they would eventually discover that I was right. That even happened once I was off the ventilator and able to talk again. I had therapists and doctors that didn't listen to me and did things to me that were painful. And I remember crying and telling my mom, I feel the same way I felt when I was on the ventilator that... I don't have a voice and that people aren't listening to me. And I think that this is, this is something that I think about a lot when I'm talking to parents, right? Like mm -hmm. we, I always tell parents, like, you know, your child better than any therapist. Mm -hmm. So sure. Like, you know, as clinicians, we can go and we can do an assessment we can recommend something like a device or a certain treatment approach or a certain target or goals. Right. But at the end of the day, like parents, know their, their children best. And yes. to follow that intuition, I think is really, really important. And as SLPs, we need to advocate for that. Like we mm -hmm. need to encourage that. Um, you know, I, there's nothing that I feel like is worse than a professional who, who's like, I know the answer. I know the golden answer. Yeah. Um, you know, because first of all, there is no golden answer typically. Yeah. Um, and also like, we really need to take into consideration, like these are people's lives. Like these are, you know, children and adults, it's their lives and, um, really working with, families um, about what their goals are and what they yep. want to see happen. Don't miss next week because we're going to finish up our interview with Carly. You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.